If I say hello to Michelle again. Ain't she purdy? to share the testimony. We just don't share anything about anybody in this session with anybody. Even if we don't use the name, we try not to because we want it to be a safe place. And we want to hold that safe place for people to come to. And so, just so you know that. Well, I have a testimony from somebody who is from Greenwood area. And um, that's a really good testimony. Um, God accelerated the process of refinement and had me do a mini Okay, here we go. So we're going to talk about, last week I, I shared that we're going to, I'm going to talk about the book. I want to give an overview because there's some really important stuff that I want to highlight. Um, there's some things that I think we're going to need to know as we go into the summer. Um, but I'm talking about the, the book Sacred Rhythms. That's a part of the sabbatical that we are doing as a church. And again, I, I shared last week in my outline that our, uh, for, of our sabbatical for the summer, we're reading through Ruth Haley Barton's book, Sacred Rhythm, and in a nutshell, this book is about uh, taking a really, a good, hard look at ourselves and slowing down enough to hear God say something 
about where we are spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. It's about how we experience deep, fundamental change in our life with God. And so this book is a tool to help us answer some questions. Do you desire greater intimacy with God? Do you wonder how you might truly live your life as God created you to live? These are very important questions that we want to ask and should be asking ourselves daily. You know, when we do soul examining work, it can become frustrating if we have an attitude or a thought of fixing or perfecting ourselves through some kind of new routine. This book is about spiritual practices. Now, it's important to understand that spiritual practices in and of themselves are not able to make you any more valuable, any more loved, or any more accepted by God. You are accepted by God. Stop. That's it. Spiritual practices are not something to do perfectly, but as the name suggests, they are things that we are to practice. And that means as we're practicing, for all of you sports freaks, you have to be patient, don't you? Because it takes time. You have to allow yourself to be a learner. You've got to be curious. You've got to be grace-filled toward yourself in the process of learning discipline. And so this book is about introducing some spiritual disciplines as activities that will open us up to God's transforming love and bring change that only God can bring about in our lives. I am tired of trying to change me. God is our transforming God. So this book, it's not about try harder, do better. It's not about try harder, do better. This is about being real with where you are, and then it just gives us tools that will help open us up and, and, and give us access to God's transforming power, which is his love. Amen? So this book comes from a specific stream of Christianity. If we were to look at all of the different denominations and movements in Christianity, we can easily see that, they are, that there are several distinct streams. You know, I, I read, just recently read a, a wonderful book by a guy named Richard Foster called Streams of Living Water. And in this book, Richard Foster spends over 400 pages outlining and describing six major streams or traditions of Christianity. And wouldn't you know it, our church is one of the six streams. We are a part of the charismatic stream or tradition of Christianity. Now, for most of us in this room, we are very familiar with that reality. If you've been here for even a couple of months, you know what charismatic stream Christianity looks like. Most of us are here are very familiar with that, but we're also very familiar with another major stream, and that is the evangelical Christian stream. Now, in his book, Richard discusses each of these six streams, and he talks about each of their major emphasis. For us, as a part of the charismatic stream, our focus and the emphasis of charismatic Christianity is the charisma, or the gifts and power of God. Charismatic Christianity emphasizes a spirit-empowered life. We are also, again, like I said, we're very familiar with evangelical Christianity. And this is where um, our uh, Baptist family members, brothers and sisters, and, and other de denominations, this is where they reside. And so in the evangelical stream, they emphasize a word-centered life, right? 
Baptists know their Bible. In fact, most of the great Bible teachers come from the evangelical tradition. Most of the Bible study tools that we have that have been developed are developed by the evangelical stream of Christianity. Things like here journals, soap studies, uh, BSF, which is Bible Study Fellowship. All of that stuff came from the evangelical stream because they are a word-centered stream. But those two streams are not everything. In fact, at least according to Richard Foster, there are at least four more streams of Christianity. There's the holiness stream. They are committed to a virtuous life. And we know our holiness brothers and sisters. We know who they are. They emphasize purity of heart that translate into every aspect of the way that they live outwardly. It's easiest for us to to see their convictions and how they dress modestly. There's also the social justice stream. Now, relax. I know we're all getting uptight. (laughs) We're not talking about the social justice warrior that we have grown disgusted to. Wish away. We're not talking about that. That is not what we're talking about. The social justice tradition or stream is a, is a stream of Christianity that teaches about the compassionate life of God, right? And this is where we find um, like our Quaker brothers and sisters. They teach us to remember the widow, the orphan, and the alien among us. Go to a Quaker church around Martin Luther King Day. There's Easter, Christmas, and Martin Luther. (laughs) Like, it's a tie sometimes. When it comes to social justice and fighting for for those who have no voice, they focus on fighting for the powerless, giving voice to those who truly are oppressed, truly are oppressed in society. And so that's the social justice stream. And then there is the incarnational stream. And they teach us about the sacramental life. And the sacramental life is a life that is focused on the embodiment of Christ in everything we do. We are to abandon our compartmental living where God is welcome in some places, but he's not welcome in others. It's in this stream that teaches us how to take God with us everywhere we go. You know, statistically, most children who leave the faith do so because they only experience God at their church and rarely at home. In fact, the statistics say that they see their parents at church raising their hands And then at home, they live compromised lives. The incarnational stream seeks to express Christianity and experience Christ in everything we do. We never put him in the corner. He never has a time out so we can do life the way we feel like it. Things like communion, the taking of the the Lord's Supper, is a very strong and powerful spiritual practice that these churches take very, very seriously. And then the last major stream that Richard talks about is the contemplative stream. And this stream teaches us about the prayer-filled life. This tradition is highly focused on fostering an active ongoing dialogue with God. Things like loving God with all of our heart, it is very central to this stream. And its focus is on the inner life that we have with God. It is in this stream of Christianity that we find this book by Ruth Haley Barton. This is where this book comes from, the contemplative stream. 
This book is introducing some aspects to us from the contemporary or the contemplative stream of Christianity. Now, as I have read the Richard's book, Streams of Living Water, and I think about our current emphasis on discipleship as a church, I'm beginning to see that there are some extra things from these other streams that we need to incorporate in our discipleship process, right? We have been a charismatic church focused on the power and the gifts of God. Recently, we have made a huge emphasis on the evangelical or the word-centered stream of Christianity, right? We're doing here journals now. We've got a church reading plan. We've changed how we preach And all of this is designed to make us more theologically sound as a church. That was the prophetic word we got in 2012. That God was going to make us more theologically sound. We need the evangelical emphasis, the word-centered life to do that. But this summer, we are now introducing and going deeper into the contemplative or prayer-focused stream of Christianity. And I feel like God is showing me more and more that we need all of these streams touching our lives in various ways in order to see Christ fully formed in us. Discipleship and growing in God is not just more Bible reading. It's not just more gift and power discovery. We need all six of these streams in our lives, helping to make us the disciples that Christ has called us to be. So this book by Haley, Ruth Haley Barton, Sacred Rhythms, it's from the contemplative stream. And because we have not emphasized this particular stream here in our church, this book will seem unfamiliar. And there's going to be a learning curve involved. But I promise you, it is biblically based. It's full of grace. So what I want to do is I'm going to quickly talk about each of these chapters in in a very short overview of each one so that we can just start to get our feet wet. And most of you maybe have got the book yet. I don't don't know if we started handing them out yet, but I know a lot of you are already ordered. Um, But first chapter in the book is titled Longing for More. And in this chapter, Ruth talks about our longing and desire. And she says on page 22, she says, When was the last time you felt it? Your own longing, that is. Your longing for love. Your longing for God. Your longing to live your life as it is meant to be lived in God. When was the last time you felt a longing for healing and fundamental change groaning within you? Don't rush past this question. It may be the most important question you ever ask. But this is hard, I know. In religious circles, we are much more accustomed to silencing our desire and distancing ourselves from it because we are suspicious and afraid of its power. Isn't there something better I should be doing with my time, we ask ourselves? Something a little less dangerous and unpredictable? Something more selfless and spiritual? And besides, desire is such a volatile thing. So in this chapter, Ruth, she begins by leading us through a questioning process and naming to help us name our desires in the presence of Christ. Most of us are afraid of what will happen if we truly search our heart and start to name our desire. But it is a very important first step. And then she goes on and she talks about how desire is the beginning of our spiritual journey. Desire can lead us to the good things of God. It also can reveal selfish ambition in our heart. And so she uses the story of James and John's mother asking if they can sit on the left and right of Christ in his kingdom. And it's interesting because even though the request shows their self-absorption, their selfishness, and what they were trying to get. Christ was still compassionate with them as he dealt with them with his heart. 
But when it comes to desire and longing for us, Ruth, she uses a really great story, the story of blind Bartimaeus. And I'm just going to read through this quickly. It says, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out loud and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And he, Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So chapter one is about longing. It's about hearing Jesus ask us the question, what do you want? Chapter two is about solitude. In this chapter, Ruth says, the longing for solitude is the longing for God. It is the longing to experience union with God unmediated by the ways we typically try to relate to God. By unmediated, I mean a direct experience with God with nothing in between. It's an encounter with God that is not mediated by works, by words, by theological constructs, by religious activity, by my own or others' manipulation of my relationship with God. It is the practice that spiritual seekers down through the ages have used to experience intimacy with God rather than just talking about it. And so she talks in this chapter about how solitude is a place for the soul to come out and to feel safe. She talks about unplugging from distractions and really being open to listening more than we do our talking. And so in this chapter, she is going to talk about being still and getting in touch with what is really true about us. And she uses the illustration of a jar full of river water. And uh, she talks about how most of us are like a stirred-up mess of sediment. It's just swirling around in that jar of river water. And she tells us that it takes time to sit still long enough for the sediment to settle. And then we can see clearly through the water again. So she talks about Learning what it really means to rest in God and what does that look like. And the scriptural basis that she uses for this practice of solitude is in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And it says, the apostles, they returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. They were super excited. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. Let's rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And when they went away in the boat to a desolate place, and then they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. In chapter 3, she talks about Scripture. And she asks the question, are we reading for information or for transformation? Now, both of these are necessary. But we miss out on heart connection and transformation if we are only reading for information. And so she goes into what it looks like to read for relationship. Moving stuff from the head down into the heart. And then she talks about how how to encounter God through Scripture. And she talks about practical ways how to do that through an ancient practice called Lexio Divina. 
which I'm going to talk more about here in a minute. But she talks about prayer, and in this, this chapter on Scripture, how do we connect God in a deeper, more intimate way through the Word of God? And then in chapter 4, she talks about prayer. And in this chapter, ta- Ruth talks about how we really don't know how to pray and talk to God. And she says, uh, the experience of having our prayers go cold, as distressing as it is, signals a major transition in the life of prayer, and thus in our relationship with God. It signals an invitation to deeper levels of intimacy that will move us beyond communication, which primarily involves words and concepts, into communion, which is primarily beyond words. If there are any words at all, they are reduced to the simplest and most visceral expressions. So she goes on into this chapter and she talks about how prayer is supposed to create intimacy with us. She talks about what it looks like when prayer goes beyond words. You're like, what does that mean? She explains it. And we learn about the importance of even breathing and breathing through our prayers and how to even develop a breath prayer, which is something really, really powerful. And then she continues to discuss um, the value of community and prayer. She talks about how we've got to develop this, uh, how we, we, we need a, a routine of praying at scheduled times throughout the day. Some of you guys, you know, if you've been around for a long time, you may remember when we went through the book study, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We did that in our connect groups. And in that book, we learned about something called the daily office. Who remembers that? The daily office is a term that all it was, it just signified uh, taking regular moments throughout the day to stop what you're doing and to turn your hearts to the Lord and to commune with Him. That was it. You just stop, take five minutes to stop and turn towards the Lord. It was practicing the presence of God. And so this chapter about prayer is about developing that rhythm and that pattern she, of, of stopping and talking with God. And she talks about how we can even make all of our life prayer and communion with God. Chapter 5 is about honoring the body. And in chapter 5, Ruth begins by quoting uh, Stephanie Paulsell. And she says, The Christian practice of honoring the body is born of the confidence that our bodies are made in the image of God's own goodness. As the place where the divine presence dwells, our bodies are worthy of care and blessing. It is through our bodies that we participate in God's activity in the world. And so in this chapter, Ruth shares about our spirituality is not just about soul and spirit stuff, but it's actually flesh and blood as well. Our spirituality is a spirit, soul, and body spirituality. Unfortunately, you know, most of us treat our bodies poorly. Some even abuse their bodies. But Ruth talks about how we've got to learn to receive our bodies as a gift from God that is good. Not something to abuse, not something to misuse. She talks about how we've got to learn to care for the body and listen to our body. She talks about the the part our body plays, actually plays in, in, in prayer. And the, the scripture she uses to anchor this is Psalm 63, verse 1. She says, O God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. She also says in this chapter, she says, Intimacy happens 
as we bring more and more of ourselves into God's presence. To pray with soul and body means, says Jane Vennard, praying with all of who we are, our physicality, our emotions, our intuitions, our imaginations, our minds, and all of our experiences. Therefore, when we pray with body and soul, or love with body and soul, or belong with body and soul, we are believing, responding, surrendering with all of who we are. And then she talks, finishes the chapter about what is living in wholeness. And what does that look like as as, uh, Christians who are seeking to honor God in the body? In chapter 6, Ruth talks about self-examination. And in this chapter, self-examination, the practice of bringing my whole self uh, before God. And she says that there comes a time in the spiritual life when one of the major things God is up to is lovingly help us see ourselves more clearly. This is a most challenging element of the spiritual life, one that most of us shrink from with more than a little bit of dread. Some of us have been so shaped by shame-based family or church systems that we resist entering into deep levels of self-knowledge for fear of feeling debilitated by shame or swept away by remorse. For others, our sense of worth is so fragile or our perfectionism so profound that we are not sure we could bear facing the truth of our own darkness without being completely unraveled. As a mouthful. You know, the biblical principle for this is found in one, Psalm 139, verse 23. It's, David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So one of the, the tools that she introduces in this chapter is... Um, a thing called the prayer of examine. The prayer of examine is a prayer that we do either daily or weekly where we take time in the presence of God to examine how present we were with God through the day as well as asking God to show us, where did I miss you today? Where did I miss you? And ultimately, God, How have I sinned? She talks about this is not to be a morbid time of self-deprecation. Right? This is not to be a morbid time of self-deprecation, but a time where we allow the loving presence of God to speak to our weaknesses. And she also talks about the need for confession. How we need to confess our sins to each other. Yes, to God, but also to each other so that healing can come to our lives. Because with confession, Ruth says, comes this beautiful experience of being forgiven and the blessing of what is on the other side of forgiveness. So that's chapter 6. In chapter 7, she talks about discernment. And she says, discernment is, first of all, a habit. A way of seeing that eventually permeates our whole life. It is the journey from spiritual blindness, not seeing God anywhere, or seeing Him only where we expect to see Him, to spiritual sight, finding God in everything, especially where we least expect it. Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits and best known for developing a set of spiritual exercises intended to hone people's capacity for this discipline, defined the aim of discernment as finding God in all things in order that we might love and serve God in all things. And so in this chapter, Ruth talks about the foundation of discernment and the practice of discernment. Uh, scriptures like Romans 12, 1 and 2, right, tells us what the true mark 
of a mature Christian looks like. It says, appeal to you, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by, the t- by testing you, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what mature Christianity looks like, those who are able to discern the will of God. And so she talks about how we uh, learn to become, how to learn to become indifferent. Indifferent to our own biases, indifferent to our preferences, to our wants in life. Learning to be indifferent means I am becoming indifferent to anything but the will of God. And so she talks about the process of learning to notice things without jumping to a judgment of some kind. Is that hard for anyone but me? She talks about how to ask the right questions, to learn what we need to learn. And then she finishes the chapter with some encouragement about just once you discern the will of God, it is time to step out. It is time to, in faith, go for it. Say go for it. Everybody say go for it. Once we have discernment, the call is to go for it. By faith, step out and go after what God is saying. It is a really great chapter. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. In chapter 8, he talks, or she talks about Sabbath. And I talked a bunch about this last week and its importance. And, but she shares from Isaiah 58, verse 13, which I love. She says, if you turn, the scripture says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, Call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So she talks about listening to our longings in Sabbath. How do we need to learn to honor our limits? And so she talks about how do we get started honoring the Sabbath? What are the things that we should exclude from the Sabbath? And what are the things that we should include when it comes to the sacred rhythm of Sabbath keeping? And so this is a wonderful chapter on a very critical discipline that's necessary. This is a necessary part of our transformation in God. And in the last chapter, chapter 9, she talks about developing a rule of life. And in this chapter, she says, living into what we want in any area of our life requires some sort of intentional approach. Building a solid financial base, retirement planning, home improvements, career advancement, further education, losing weight, or becoming more fit. All of these require a plan if we are to make any progress in achieving what we desire. The desire for a way of life that creates space for God's transforming work is no different. However, if we look closely at the way we live day to day, we may well notice that our approach to spiritual transformation is much more random and haphazard than our approach to finances, home improvements, and weight loss. Many of us try to shove spiritual transformation into the nooks and crannies of life that is already unmanageable. Rather than being willing to arrange our life for what our heart most wants. We think that somehow we will fall into transformation by accident. Oh, that hurt. So in this chapter, Ruth is going to, she's talking, she talks about developing a rhythm of spiritual practices. She talks about the process of how to develop a plan for spiritual formation 
through the process of asking ourselves powerful questions. Questions like, how bad do I want transformation? Am I willing to rearrange my life for what my heart most wants? And then she also gives some really practical examples of what it might look like to develop a rule of life when it comes to a daily uh, routine, a weekly routine, a monthly, and even a yearly plan. So Ruth discusses that transformation cannot happen without community. We think we can isolate into our own homes, never do life with anyone, never bump up and get hurt, never get confused by what did you say and what did you mean. That person is prickly. They hurt my feelings. I don't want to be around them anymore. We think we can just go hide and be transformed, and that's not true. We have to have community, doing life together with other like-minded people. It is essential. It is essential for transformation. The meeting together of the saints centered on Christ and spiritual friendship, it has to be a part of anyone's true plan and strategy for transformation. And so she uses the example of Jesus, who also chose a community of men to be around him. He did life with them. So that's the overview of the book. And as I shared last Sunday, um, Brett Fisher is going to be sharing some of his experiences with these spiritual practices to help us get the most from this study because he's, he's ahead of us on some of this stuff. And uh, we've asked him to come and share his experiences and his thoughts and He's going to provide a, a perspective as not a charismatic, but as a contemplative. And I love that. I love it. Now, I shared again earlier that I want to go through some, some, a definition of terms that we're going to come across in this book. And again, these terms are familiar in the contemplative stream, but they are not so much familiar to us in the charismatic stream. And I, I want to help build us a bridge. So the first term that I, I shared was Lexio Divina. And Lexio Divina is a Latin term that means divine reading or sacred reading. And it is a time-honored practice of scriptural reading, med- uh, meditation, and prayer intended to promote communion with God and to increase the knowledge of God's Word. Now, Lexio Divina is a practice that started probably around the 3rd century, and then it was formalized around the 6th century. And the focus of Lexio Divina is not a theological analysis of a biblical passage, but it is viewing the passage with Christ as the key to its meaning. And let me give you an example of this. So Jesus makes this statement in John 14, 27. He says, Peace I, live, I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, an analytical approach to this scripture would focus on the reason for the statement at the Last Supper. You know, what is the biblical context of this passage? Uh, you know, what's the historical truth of what was going on and why, why were these words spoken in that moment, right? All of the questions that we use to try to explain the passage, right? I mean, this is the E in our here journal. What's, what's being said? What's going on right now? In Lexio Divina, instead of analyzing the Scripture, we seek to enter into the Scripture, Right? Instead of analyzing what does peace mean, we actually partake of the peace. We get into it. We we dive into the passage to experience the peace of Christ rather than dissecting it. And so this form of prayer uh, 
was, is designed to lead us to a heart knowledge of Christ. And so in Lexio Divina, there are six steps or six questions that we walk through. First one is preparation. And when we do preparation, we're just quiet. We just silence ourselves. We, we become present with God, right? We've got the life swirling, swirling, the, the, the water and the jars just, no, sit, settle, let it all come down. And just be present with Christ. That's preparation. We tell God that we are open and that we want to hear what he has to say through this passage of scripture. And step two, it's read. And this is where we start to listen for the word or the phrase that is God wanting to speak to you. He's wanting to address you with. The next step, it's reflect. You ask questions like, how is my life touched by this word right now? What does that look like, God? Then we go to respond. What is my response to God based on what I have read and I have encountered? And then we move back into rest again. We rest in the word of God. And in this final time that we read through the scripture, we are invited to release and return to this place of peace with God. And then the last step is resolve. This is where we incarnate or live out the word of God. How will I live this out in my life? Very similar to our here journal. Now let me, I'm going to, I want to help you with, I think, one more way that this approach, Lexio Divina, to scripture is going to help us, some of us. So most of us are familiar with left brain, right brain theory, right? Now, it's called a theory because it's not been proven by science, nor has it been disproven by science. But the language is so familiar, it's so popular that we use it to describe how people encounter and learn in the world. And so the theory is is that the left part of our brain is the logical, analytical uh, thinking, the facts, the reasoning, the planning, the, the scientific approach, all of that stuff. And that the right side of our brain is where things like emotion and art and creativity and music and visualization and our, our imagination reside, right? And, and they came to this because through just observation of brain injuries, when people would injure part of their brain, they would lose one of these facets. So typically when we claim, you know, I'm a left brain learner, and processor, or I'm a right brain learner or processor, uh, you know, whether the theory is true or not, it is a way that we can use to describe how people learn and process the world around them. So how does Lexio Divina fit in with this? I believe that, you know, as, as most of you know, we have introduced here journals, and we've asked everyone to participate. We've asked everyone, please, please do hear journals. And I've heard from a lot of you, and I know that some have struggled with doing the hear journal, especially when it comes to experiencing the presence of God in doing them. My thinking is, is that some of us might be struggling with the hear journal because the Here Journal tends to lean towards a left brain approach to God's Word. Right? What's the original meaning? What are the facts surrounding this passage? What is the theological truth and fact about this passage? How do these, uh, the, the, the historical truth of this apply to my life? It's very left brain heavy. I believe that Lexio Divina is more of a right-brained approach to Scripture because this approach is designed to evoke our imagery, 
our emotions, and to help us encounter God and His presence through the Scripture. Now listen, I am not saying that we can't or don't encounter the presence of God in our here journal. As I know, I know there are people who are having powerful encounters through God, with God through that process. But I do believe that Lexio Divina will be an easier path for some to experience the presence of God in Scripture. And please remember, these are just tools. Here, journal, it's just a tool. Lexio Divina, it's just a tool. And hear me when I say this. I believe we need both. I believe we need both here journals to make us more theologically sound. And I believe we need Lexio Divina to help us encounter God in the Word of God. So listen, I, I don't want us abandoning one tool for the other. Because I'm pretty sure everyone in this room has two parts to their brain. And unless you want us to call you a half-brained idiot, no one likes that. We are supposed to use both parts of our brain. We need to grow in the theological truth of God's word. And we need to encounter God and his presence in the word. We still need here journals. And we're still going to do here journals. But I believe that adding Lexio Divina, it's really going to help our hearts connect with the word of God in some new and deeper ways. A couple of other terms that you're going to read in the book is Ruth will talk about um, true self versus false self. So when she talks about our true self, she, she's talking about the part of us that was beautifully and wonderfully originally created with all of our personality, our preferences, and the unique way that we approach the world that can only be found, listen to what I'm saying, can only be found in our union with Christ. When she talks about the false self, she's referring to the, the sin part of our lives, the, the, the lies that we live out of, the masks that we wear to gain love and acceptance in the world. So that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. If you really want to hear from her directly on this topic, she's got a YouTube video. Did that one, did I just put that up there? There you go. Sorry, behind. So, you can go to YouTube, just do a search, Ruth Haley Barton, True Self, and you can listen to her for two minutes talk about what that means. Um, another term that she uses that might be unfamiliar is a term called spiritual formation. And this is a term that is derived from passages like Romans 12.2, where it says, be transformed, right, by the renewing of your mind. And... Uh, Galatians 4.19, where Paul's talking and he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, before we talk about spiritual formation, we've got to first define dis discipleship. And in the Lexham Theological Wordbook, it says, Discipleship is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from and become more like them. For the Christian, this refers to the process of learning the teachings of Jesus and following after his example in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Discipleship not only involves the process of becoming a disciple, but of making other disciples through teaching and evangelism. That is a wonderful definition of discipleship. We see discipleship in the New Testament, as we see, uh, we watch Jesus' disciples give up their entire lives to follow and learn from Christ. So for Christians today, it's the process of learning how to think and act as a follower of Jesus within the context of a faith community. Now, how does spiritual formation differ from discipleship? 
Well, in the book, Foundations of Spiritual Formation, it's defined as a spiritual formation is the ongoing process of God transforming the believer's life and character toward the life and character of Jesus Christ, accomplished by the ministry of the Spirit in the context of biblical community. Now, I realize that both of these terms are very similar, and they seem like maybe we're splitting hairs. But there is a slight difference. And the way I, I, I define it based on the terms is that I believe spiritual formation is the inworking of God and discipleship is the outworking of God. Which means you can't have one without the other. Even though spiritual formation and discipleship both involve a process of growth and change, spiritual formation is directed by the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Whereas discipleship, it is the process where we as believers learn to live out as a transformed individual. Spiritual formation begins with the understanding that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. But then once I'm saved, God calls us to change. My behavior should change. My attitudes, my thoughts. And we allow the Holy Spirit to begin working in our life so that we can become more and more like Jesus. We start to look more and more like Jesus. So, there's your terms. There'll be maybe a couple more. But you're smart people. You'll figure it out. All right, so as I finish up, and I am finishing... I want to just share my experience and my journey when it comes to the contemplative stream. About three to four years ago, I was at another dark place in my life and leadership. I was seriously doubting my effectiveness again here in this place, and I was hurting pretty bad. And so I had reached out to some pastors and leaders in the region for some guidance and for some help. Um, I got all kinds of thoughts, what I should and shouldn't do. Some told me it might be time for me to quit my job here, maybe find a new church. Some told me I might find fulfillment in a job that's not the ministry. But one person suggested that I meet with a spiritual coach that they, had, they knew. And so the bonus was that this coach was also um, in the charismatic stream and had a, a prophetic gift. Now, I'm a certified leadership and life coach, and so I loved the idea of meeting with a coach to help me get my heart straight, especially a prophetic one. So I set up a meeting over the phone, and in our first phone session, um, my coach is listening, and based on what I had shared with her, she told me that she wanted to introduce me to some Christian spiritual practices that weren't, fam weren't familiar in the charismatic stream that she and I were a part of. As I talked, she could hear that I was hurting and I was in a desperate place and I desperately needed to experience God's grace in deeper and more tangible ways. And so through the process of, of meeting with her on the phone, um, she introduced things like breath prayers, um, silent prayer, where I just sit with Christ and I don't speak any words. Just allow his presence to touch me. Um, I learned about Lexia Divina. I, honestly, what she shared with me was much of what's in this book, Sacred Rhythms. Now, I have to admit that I was hesitant at first. I was reluctant. This was unfamiliar to me. From what I could see, it was old. This is old stuff. And as we know in the charismatic stream, if it's old, it must be bad. 
Because everything old is religious, right? I also noticed that many of these spiritual disciplines were formed by monks hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So do I have to become a monk to practice these spiritual disciplines? No. Do I have to buy a brown robe, sit in the dark? Do I have to turn in all my worship music and only listen to Gregorian chant now? Or there's the greatest sin that any evangelical or charismatic could commit. If I do these things, will I become a Catholic? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I, I thought all that stuff. So needless to say, I was, I was a reluctant contemplative. But as I worked through the disciplines and I could see all the biblical foundation for all of it, I gave myself to it. And it was transformative. I experienced grace in new ways than I had never experienced. I connected with God in different and new ways that I had never connected. It was a life-saving experience. So I get the hesitation. I get the foreignness of these tools. I'm just going to ask you to please just be honest with God. Be honest with yourself. And look to the biblical foundations of these new to us, but not, not really new at all, spiritual disciplines. That we're going to read about in this book. I'm looking forward to putting more of these disciplines into my own rule of life. I still need transformation. I still need healing. And guess what? So do all of you. And if you really want to see how the contemplative stream and the charismatic stream go beautifully together, I recommend that you go check out the International House of Prayer in Kansas City or the upper room in Dallas, Texas. They have done an excellent job of bringing the charismatic worship and power stream together with the contemplative prayer and intimacy stream. So will we go on this journey together? Will you go on this with us? I hope we do this together. Because God is up to something, and it's going to be good. Amen? Amen? Here's your action plan this week. Sign up for the book, Sacred Rhythms at the Welcome Center. Today is the last day. All we're asking is that you pay $5 for the book. But you can go to the Welcome Center right after service. Sign up if you haven't already signed up and get a copy. Also, this week we're reading 1 Timothy chapter 4. Please do your here journal. Please discuss it in your discipleship groups. Families, please still come together and talk about this as a family with your children and your spouse. It's so important that we make the word of God real and alive at home. And we're memorizing 1 Corinthians 13, 7 through 8. All righty, let's pray. Why don't you stand up? I know you're tired and a little bored and Sorry about that. I know a lot of information is sometimes hard to process, but this was my assignment for the day. So God, I'm just grateful for your presence. Even when I'm having a stinky day, or stinky, stinky week or month or year, God, it doesn't matter what we're having. You are still good, and your grace is still available. And yeah, we want to enjoy your presence, God, but your presence is here. So, Father, I'm asking again, I'm, I repent to you, God, for the heaviness, 
the dark cloud that followed me into church today. And I just say, God, forgive me for the lies that I believe and the hurts that I feel. You know it's crushing and it's crippling, God. But you are so good. So I pray for us, God. I pray for this church that dissonance would be resolved in our hearts. That relationships would get repaired in this place. That hard hearts and cold hearts and callous hearts would be soft again. That your spirit would have your way so that we can see the revival that you've promised us so many times. God, I pray you go with us this week. Help us to get Christ formed in us so that we can live Christ out to the world. I thank you, God, for this family. Thank you for your work in our lives. And I bless you, God, in Jesus' name. Everybody says, Amen. 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 Have a great day.